0: Welcome back to Stage Left. Today we talk about sound design with Sinead Diskin, Isaac Gibson and Peter Power. This episode was recorded earlier this year during Ireland's second lockdown and Sinead, Isaac and Peter reflect on the challenges of creating a sound experience for live streaming as opposed to a theater or venue, from technical equipment and software at both ends to new technologies that are developing to suit new needs. In this podcast, they share their experiences in theatre, where sound design has been, in general, brought in very late in the process, and the difficulties that that entails at many levels. For Isaac, sound should be a main part in developing the theatre narrative, and therefore, sound designers should be a key part of the creative process. Peter Power believes that sound design is becoming more important but conversations need to happen at national level with policymakers. For Sinead, one of the key aspects is the obsolescence of the tech model, which has remained the same for a long time, even if the technologies have changed drastically. They also talk a little bit about the lack of sound design training or education at third level specific to theater. And finally, they talk about collaborating with other designers and issues related to terminology and definitions, sound design, composition or soundscape. My name is Noelia Ruiz and I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome
1: to the Irish Society of Stage and Screen Designers podcast. Each episode covers different aspects of sonography and its processes, with designers from all disciplines at a variety of stages in their careers. These podcasts are possible thanks to the Design and Crafts Council of Ireland.
2: My name is Isaac Gibson, and currently, uh, well, I'm a DJ and I'm a producer and a sound designer, but currently I'm doing a PhD uh, in research Um, specifically looking at sound design and interventions for use within palliative care, specifically hospices, um, sort of integrating my discipline, which is music technology, sound design, that creative side, and mixing it with a discipline that isn't always considered creative, which is palliative care. Uh, So that would be my background currently. Um, I've been a lover of music my entire life, for the past, you know, well, I'm only 24 at the moment. so for the past, you know, 10 to 20 years, I've been playing instruments for as long as I can remember, piano, guitar, and sort of nationally progressed throughout school into Belfast Met, into a music technology course, then on the Queens to do a summer course, and then obviously my PhD research now. So that's a wee bit about me. Uh, lovely to meet you, Isaac. Uh,
3: my name is Peter Power. Um, I am a... I suppose, a multidisciplinary artist, although I'm not sure what that means anymore. Uh, I work primarily in um, sort of crossovers between theater, visual arts, music, uh, and sound design. Um, I have my own company Sparsoil, which I make stuff with, uh, that is kind of non-linear narrative music-led projects that are built around lots of other kind of art forms. and then i work as a sound designer and composer sort of for hire uh for other people um i'm currently kind of moving into areas of uh sort of spatialized sound which is a really complex word these days really what it means so i'm, I'm doing a bit with vr uh vr ar crossovers um i'm doing a. Uh, I've always kind of worked in specialised or surround sound elements in theatre. I find the kind of front wall of theatre very boring. The sort of uh, proscenium arch approach it seems to be sort of prevalent. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'm kind of uh, mixing it up now a little bit. Kind of a third visual arts, a third music and sound design, and a third sort of like concept development and uh, consultancy things. So that's kind of what I do now.
1: My name is Sinead Diskin. I am a sound designer and composer, um, predominantly for theatre really, um, but some film stuff as well. Um, I studied music in Trinity a long time ago um, and through that degree majored in music technology and then um, specifically in sound design. So um, I started working in theatre maybe six or seven years ago um, and then did the Seeds program with Magic Theatre Company and that kind of um really started it off for me um career wise. It kind of put me in touch well I learned a huge amount and um, but it put me in touch with people and I got to assist great people. Um, and from there on I've kind of um been lucky enough to to be working fairly consistently. So um yeah so the seeds program was, was a huge, huge change for me. Um, and yeah, I work mostly in theatres. Um, I love doing site-specific. I've gotten to work with new a little bit over the last couple of years, and that's been really interesting and really challenging. Um, so the site-specific were very interesting and fun to work on. Um, and now we are faced with the live stream world. So that's something I'm trying to figure out and trying to learn more about how we can enhance the experience for the audience member if they are listening on laptop
0: headphones, which isn't very desirable. So that's kind of where I'm at. Thank you so much. It's great to have such a variety of backgrounds and perspectives. I usually ask our guests in this podcast about the most challenging project they've worked on. And listening to Sinead and the challenges of play streaming, I would love to hear a little bit more about those. Well, oh, I just worked on Happy
1: Days in with Landmark in the Olympia and um, it it was a brilliant experience. It was a it's a fantastic team of people. Um, but I think it really showed me that um there's lots of room and there's lots of potential for us as sound designers and as it's very difficult for lighting designers as well to investigate what we can do to enhance the experience and what we can how we can um work together to to kind of bridge the gap and the separation um for the audience. So um it's challenging in Lots of for lots of different reasons. I think um just the understanding of how to make the technology work, I suppose, a bit better, but also you know, trying to set up the space so that it feels in the in the room, it feels like a regular theatre show, but that we can um we can try and kind of make it work for sound travelling through the stream better. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just something that I'm, I that I really am interested in learning more about. I don't think the form is um, I don't think we're going to abandon live stream, even if if and when we can get back into theatres and have audiences there. I think it's something that will stay in some way or form. And I think, you know, for its reach and its archival um, opportunity, I think it's great. Um, but I just think, yeah, there's lots of lots to learn and lots to investigate about how we can make it work better for designers.
0: Thank you, Sinead. Anything to add, Isaac or Peter?
2: Me? Sorry, Uh, just in terms of like the lockdown and the way sound design is currently being done at the minute. For me, fortunately, I've had quite a pleasant experience with projects that have been ongoing, um, especially working with like Tinderbox Theatre Company. They've done a great job of... um, Using the format that is available to them at the minute, which is obviously, you know, utilizing Zoom calls and sort of live streaming uh, as a form of theatrical performance. And personally, I thought that it's worked well. From a sound designer's perspective, it can be a wee bit difficult. Um, Usually I'd be in a room, you know, with the director and you're able to respond back and forth. But with Zoom, it's a wee bit more difficult. And especially with the audio side of things, getting that feedback initially was difficult. Um, especially in a timely manner so you know Zoom especially has a great function in which to sort of share computer screen and share computer audio which has helped me quite a lot in terms of sitting with a director and actually sharing my computer sharing the audio from my computer and being able to get feedback in real time I mean it's as close to being in a rehearsal space as I can be Um, So thankfully, I've found that experience quite enjoyable, and not too stressful. Like Peter, I do also have a background in sort of spatial audio. And sort of coming before into the lockdown, I was looking into ways in which to incorporate spatial audio to be more immersive for an audience uh, and performances. But the way things are at the minute, it's quite difficult given the limitations of people's software and computers. You know, some people might just have a a laptop some people might just have a phone that they're able to watch something on so it can be difficult to cater for everybody it's kind of my thought on this sort of issue because you can't expect everyone to have you know a great set of speakers uh, a great you know display and a great microphone and things like that you kind of have to take what you're given so that's been pretty difficult but also quite interesting to see what can, what can be done.
3: I, I would say it's been mixed for me. i would I would definitely wouldn't say it's all been good. Um, that's not that's not a reflection on the projects or the team members or it's to do with the sort of the practicalities of manifesting work, I think now has um, I mean, in one way, you could argue that sound design uh, has become more important than I think it was viewed before. Um, Sound design always has had a tricky relationship with live productions, live performance, and the kind of relationship with set, with lighting, with what I would argue now is video as well, which kind of came after it and seems to have surpassed it in importance uh, in in terms of that sort of hierarchy of needs that tends to appear. Uh, Sound design now has, because of this uh, presentational model, has become super important because you could argue one. I mean, there's been quite a lot of research done into it. I think, but um, one of the things that came up uh, on a Lear project we've been chatting on was that um, they've kind of looked into the fact that if audiences will tolerate quite a lot, but apparently if the sound is bad, it, it almost immediately causes them to disconnect. Uh, they'll tolerate dodgy visuals, breaks like that, but once the sound, the quality is bad throughout or jittery or whatever it's really and you realize that's actually quite true of anything sound is a real kind of subconscious art or actually um, material if you want to call it that and so if it's not right it's actually quite psychologically jarring Um, so uh yeah so that i think suddenly i found uh how we make our work has become of way more interest to um, directors and uh, not to say that they're not always interested on some level. Um, So in that way, I think it's been really good, really formative. It's really challenging for us because we're being kind of front-ended and it's kind of become video and sound now are the most important aspects of trying to manifest these projects. Um, But with that come a lot of challenges too, because I would agree, you know, our best bet will probably be some sort of binaural sound approach using headphones, I think in the long run. And I think we're all going to have to learn to design that way um, in a way that the workflow is fluid. At the moment, it's very hodgepodge. You're kind of borrowing multiple DAWs, multiple softwares. Nobody has the right things. It's all sort of back and forth. So I think a lot of us are trying to determine workflows right now about what way we can do this without it causing any stress Um, and that the end user gets what you hope for, which is just, you know, put your headphones in, please. Most people have headphones now uh but yeah i mean as i said i found it mixed um particularly looking at you know other technologies beyond just the sort of filming of theater and also the sort of of film versus theater and that world of like what's expected and you know what are we actually making are we making theater are we making really bad films or really good films or what is it we're actually doing right now um those questions have caused me to have mixed experience of uh what way uh of the projects working out, I think mainly because, and I don't, I mean, there's actually quite a lot of talk about this um, and I would plug that there's a really good theater forum talk coming up this week on it, but um, about fatigue, audience fatigue, where like, you know, I have to be honest, I I have watched very little stream theater and I have very little, little appetite to do so um, no matter how good it is actually. And that's, I think, because we're all burnt out a little bit. And so in that way, I think our responsibility as sound designers has become specifically to, be, uh, to try and find a way to bring that viscerality of liveness and, and the feeling of being somewhere back into our design and to get rid of this flat image. But it's, it's very, very difficult to do that, so.
0: Thanks, Peter. Those are very insightful observations. Some of them relate to something you mentioned, design lamination where sound design is brought in very late in the process. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. And also from Sinead and Isaac, their thoughts on sound design becoming crucial in this new context.
3: I think it's more that I think I have to put my hand up and say that I, I came into this industry from a very left field. I, was, I worked in science. I, I'm a science graduate and, and a musician. And that was what my world was. And a, and a composer, I suppose, in an electronic sense that then became a composer in a more traditional sense through uh, doing a master's. And then I kind of we, I kind of wove my way into being a sound designer from those sort of skills. Um, I don't think, I, I wasn't trained in theater sound design. I, I kind of just was so fascinated by theater and how it, how it seemed to, it, in, in an ironic way, because about what, what I'd say afterwards, I felt how it seemed to respect music and sound design more than a lot of other things at the time. It, fe- it felt like composing was, there was nowhere to write music for other than film, television, or theatre. And theatre felt like the one I wanted to do most and very much like Sinead, specifically site-specific theatre is the one that really got me excited. Um, what I mean by laminating on design, I think it's a problem for a lot of design uh, disciplines, but sound, I, I felt a lot in the, in the tradition of theatre, there was this sort of set would take precedence then would come lighting then would and i mean more so in in the room uh then sound would kind of be allowed to have lunch breaks and dinner breaks to try and solve problems and then costume would always be sort of pushed down the bottom and and yet and there's this kind of like you know i felt for costume design because i'm one of my biggest passions is is really good costume even though I make terrible mistakes when I choose costume in my own work but it's because I'm just costume designers are so their skill is so quiet and I feel like really good sound design you tend to not notice it and like sometimes I find that, that sometimes sound design that gets the biggest applause is the, the most bombastic and the stuff that blows me away the most is stuff that you barely hear actually but um What I feel by Laminate is on that you would come in very late and the actors would have established themselves in a certain space, a certain psychology, which they have to, I mean, that's their responsibility and the director. And lighting, there seems to be a capacity in actors to process lighting a bit more comfortably, whereas sound immediately competes. There's this real feeling of it like being in the way. And so you would end up designing in a way that felt like you were always sacrificing the concept of your design to try and make space for what was already there. And the most successful projects that I've had was where sound design was brought in at the conception phase and it was built into the project rather than attached afterwards. And unfortunately, that's not very common. I know lighting designers a lot are are they're stuck waiting to get their rig set up so that they can actually design. So a lot of it is in their imagination or their capacity to design without seeing. Whereas sound design gets trapped in this middle ground of there's a lot of like, pre-visualization audio expected before you go in the room but at the same time you're not really allowed to be in the room the same way as everyone else and then you're brought in with all these ideas these wonderful ideas that you've had back and forth with that just never seem to make it into the production because they always get thrown away because someone goes that's too loud or that's in the way or we don't need that underscored or and you're like what about all the ideas we had and I started to feel like it was this laminating process of just like come in the tech and put it on And the actors looked as surprised at what was happening as you were. (laughs) So there was kind of this process of like, yeah, there's a whole thing here. And they're like, uh, sometimes you feel like the actors feel bullied emotionally because the music might take a certain stance. They're like, I want to be freer than that. So that's kind of what I mean. Um, And yeah, I think that's changed with multi-disc work. There's a lot, particularly non-narrative work. It's freer in dance. If you're doing dance, there's a bit more of that relationship where you can be more pushy, I guess, and also more part of, Um, But I still think there's um, a a laminating that happens in in sound design. And it's not from, it's not, there's no blame in that sentiment. I think it's just the way that budgets, time and techs work. Um, But that's what I'd I'd like to hear the other guys' opinions on that.
2: Um, Just to jump in on that point. Thankfully, well, just a wee bit about my background in regards to this issue. I've worked just with the one director And thankfully, that director understands sound. um, And I think that's very important, specifically related to this issue, that directors should understand how you sound and how sound works, as opposed to just being an afterthought. In all the productions that I've done, I've been in the rehearsal room from day one, um, sitting in the corner with a laptop, sort of introducing sound. as you know the actors are in the room are performing um as i see and as, as ideas come into my head i sort of develop the sound design and play it in the room in real time throughout that entire rehearsal period and it came as a surprise to me when i heard other sound designers speak about their process of developing sound design almost as an afterthought and then coming in you know during tech week and like peter saying it being a surprise for the actors um not really sure as to what's going on whereas in the things that I've been able to do and I'm very fortunate that this is the case because I don't think I could develop sound in an environment where it's considered an afterthought. I've been able to go back and forth with the director and the actors and they've been able to have an input on what I'm doing and vice versa. Uh, I think that's a really important part Uh, and I, I think that because of this lockdown and this whole current situation it's kind of drawing attention, like Peter said, to sound, it's becoming more appreciated, and it's more in the spotlight than ever before, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, Yes, it's added pressure uh, to make sure that it's right, but (laughs) I think there's a change coming. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but in the future, I'd love for sound not to be an afterthought, but to be part in developing the theatrical narratives I mean, in a lot of these sort of live stream theatre performances or bespoke Zoom theatre performances, sound is really at the forefront. Um, And I don't necessarily want it to go back to the normal way of doing things once all of this is over. It'd be nice for sound to be, you know, a main part in developing the theatrical narratives and allowing sound designers to be a lot more part of that process. Um, And I think a key part... To achieving this is to, fortunately like I have, had a director that knows the power of sound, knows what it can do uh, and knows the ins and outs of it, at least a wee bit to an extent where they can, you know, bring an, a sound designer into a rehearsal room, know that they're gonna be able to do a specific job and so on. I think it's just really beneficial. And I think it shows in the show. Um, that's just my opinion about it. I'd like to hear what you think.
1: Um, yeah, I think In a lot of ways, I've been lucky with the collaborations I've had and that sound has been part of the conversation early on. I think I completely agree with Peter with regards the hierarchy for tech and for budgets and what we have to compete with there and what's expected of us. And I think a lot of the time, well, first of all, in the rehearsal room, the sound equipment isn't very good. So what you're playing your work through in a rehearsal room, I, I just find myself constantly having to say out loud, it's not going to sound like this in the theater guys, and you you kind of like go what's the what am I trying to achieve here you know'm I'm, or I'm constantly trying to get the director to listen to stuff on headphones, <clears throat> excuse me, so that they have a, a better picture of what it's going to sound like in the space um but then I think when it comes to tech, yeah I, I, sound just definitely gets kind of shoved aside, and I often get um a feeling of I'm asking for too much to expect a, a, an hour of quiet time and you know you know, or, or like do you need actual quiet like that's what I get asked all the time and I'm like well yeah <laughs> like that's the point you know um, and it's, it's still it's still a real sense of achievement if I get an actual hour of quiet um, and it, it blows my mind that it's still that I still have to fight so hard for that um, and that the expectation is that I should be able to just get my work done whenever. You know, it just happens kind of thing. Um, And I think what also is difficult is we have to kind of contend with what's available to us in the theatre. And the budgets for hires for sound are very, very small. And generally, the expectation is that you kind of just work with whatever the theatre has and that you deal with that. So I find that tricky because... You know, like sometimes the equipment's great and you have everything you need for if you want to do anything that's really specific and really delicate and really um nuanced. It's hard in in certain theatres that don't have the, the right equipment and the budgets that don't allow for hires. So, yeah.
3: Yeah, I have to, like, that it's just, I, I want to, in case there's any of the directors I've worked with, I, I just want to say on record that I've had some amazing directors who really do allow me to do <laughs> something the way I want, just to be clear. <laughs> I've had some really, really lovely. Actually, most of my my work has been with people who have have ha, that I've had that luxury with, you know. Um, but I will say it's it's been one that has been hard fought in terms of, you know, I can I can be in a room where you know a lighting designer might be hiring a hundred lamps, and I say, okay, well, you know, the six grand you've got for that, is there any chance that I might have like an extra PA system, and, and they're like oh, no, it's the the speaker system is this. And you're like, well, then, I mean, well, then maybe you give them 30 lamps and see what kind of design they can do. And I'll work within this system as well, you know. And there is this ongoing thing of actually on a policy level, encouraging venues to invest in sound equipment more Mm -hmm. than they have. Uh, I think there's a national conversation to be had about how all of the venues need to retrofit themselves for a more cinematic uh, s- uh, sound system setup, um, because they're, they're just seem to be avoiding it as a, as a, as a, as a, as a sort of an infrastructural spend. Mm-hmm. And I think you would see an explosion in the kind of sound design that would be possible once that happened. What tends to happen, I think, is. The, the sound designers who are more interested in in sort of you know vector sound or, or point sound or like tend to go into site specific stuff because they're like well I'm just going to go and make my own rig and hang speakers and do this and do that because I I just can't deal with two subs and two tops or you know four tops and two subs and there's this kind of thing of and you're right I think we I often. I, I would, Not only would I say I feel problematic sometimes, I would imagine that I'm considered at times problematic for holding my, my nerve and saying, you know, I need actual quiet, not a version of it where someone's moving a ladder in the background. And I remember it was, a, it was actually a lighting designer friend of mine gave me the language for it, which I've kind of borrowed since, which was, I don't call it quiet time anymore, I call it sound focus. I basically stopped referencing it as something that was I was like well you wouldn't ask a lighting designer to focus the lights with this with the workers on I equally can't focus the sound with their ambient noise and I've just I've just rephrased the term in in tech meetings where I'm like no no so my sound focus will be from this time to this time and and it, weirdly it's made a massive difference just by because it, actually I think most people want to help they just don't, maybe don't understand. And I have, I'm, I'm not, again, I, I'm not formally trained, so I want to be careful with my opinion on this, but I have noticed that sound seems to be one of the art forms in theater, not taught as maybe as depthfully as lighting design is or set design is, or state, you know, stagecraft or dramaturgy, all these things. Sound, we're still sort of a floaty magic-y sort of thing that is, kind of understood no one really understands the difference between composition and sound design there's like this constant like battle to go you know can you do the 10-hour tech and then can you go home and fix all the things for tomorrow morning and i'm like i just did a 10-hour day like no i can't you know so there's just this uh, and i think video is starting to suffer a little bit from it too this idea of you know people expecting rendering to be done not understanding the timelines of changes you know, uh, projection mapping, the consequences of moving something on set, and that there's, I think it's just weird to me that sound has been around so long, still suffers from this almost misunderstanding. Um, but, But I do think that's changing, I think, but it's changing because I think a lot of very brave sound designers have decided to just start to push on the art form and say, we need more space. And I think what changed it for me was I think very much what Sinead said was this idea of the prep, this idea of being in a room playing a thing, knowing it's at 60%, and realizing that no one in the room has been trained to understand that it's 60%. So they hear it as finished. Even if you were saying over and over and over again, this is not done, this is not done, they, they start making aesthetic decisions in that moment based on a half finished product. And you're like, and then something gets dumped and you're like, oh my God, Like that was going to be brilliant. I, I just needed to be in the room with it. And so I started getting very like, I think there's a term for it, like demo syndrome or demoitis or something like that. But <laughs> I started getting this thing where it's like, I'm just not sharing stuff until I can be, and I can go, here's the file, please wear headphones. If you don't have headphones, let me know, you know, kind of relationship. But um, yeah, I think that w- what I'm hoping now because part of, I was actually working in Sark uh, a little bit last year, and we've been talking about this idea of creating a sort of a national sound designer plan where we would put forward a, a kind of a, a affordable rig of what venues might start to look towards upgrading towards, because I think the, the nature of theatre has always funded lighting in a way that is kind of natural to its own understanding of itself. And I think sound designers need to take responsibility and help To try and push the infrastructure forward so that this educational process happens because i I think i've just given up on being annoyed about it and i think it's like you just have to take responsibility and be like okay well look this is what i think we need to do you know Um,
1: totally and i think a lot of it is the fact that the tech model has stayed the same for so long and like the technologies have changed so drastically but we're still using the same tech model that's been around for years and years and years and years so um yeah, it's it's a huge problem with doing tech days and then going home knowing that you have four or five hours of work to do before you get in at 10 o'clock the next morning. And it's something I'm constantly talking about now. Um, the last tech for Happy Days, obviously, it was a COVID tech. But I was sitting in the room going, please, can we keep this model post-COVID? Because everybody got time. There were two session days. Every department had all of the time they needed there was no pressure. Obviously, we couldn't be around each other, so that's why. So um, but I just think a two-session day for tech is is what's necessary for every department to have time and be able to develop the best work that they can. Um, and I completely agree, Peter, with the lack of kind of specific education in sound design. You know, it's really it's the only one. I don't even think there's a master's in sound design down the south, is there? There's none in the layer anyway. There might be one in Limerick. Um, but even in that, that it's it's there's n- no kind of specific training in the likes of the Lear or the the big kind of drama colleges in what sound is um, and how it should be understood and how it should be implemented in theatre is a problem, for sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, I've only done one show in London and uh, when I did the show, they just said, what do you want? And I was absolutely floored I like I didn't know how to do it I didn't I didn't have those skills in going oh I will look at an audio shops list of everything and choose the things that I want for this show and I got help to do it because I was absolutely like mind blown that that was an like the option and it was and that's that's the way it kind of it can work in in bigger theaters that have budgets and that respect the the design as much as the other departments I think
2: yeah, uh, I mean. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Isaac. No, go ahead, please. Uh, just in terms of equipment-wise, maybe I'm being biased here, but in terms of signed equipment, you could buy ten thousand worth of equipment this year, and in five years, you know, there's going to be a ton of other stuff that supersedes it and is far better. I don't know whether that's uh, an element to prevent theaters from actually updating for fear of then uh, it being obsolete within a few years to come, and maybe just trusting in their current setup. I don't know whether the same is for lighting. I haven't looked into like the cost of lighting and how often the equipment updates there are, but I know from personal experience, if I buy you know an audio interface in a couple of years' time, you know it might be obsolete. Um, so maybe that's to do with some of the fear, besides uh, some theatre companies being a bit reluctant in terms of updating their equipment. But in terms of the teaching, um, I know that Sark has, has recently brought in a sound design-specific module, and sorry, a sound design-specific degree, um, but I know part of the challenges with, with that is that it's having to cover not just theatre but film, TV, um, gaming and at times whenever you have a degree or module like that which is having to cover so many aspects You know, any formal teaching of sound design specifically for theatre can sometimes get overlooked uh, I know personally from my end whenever I had to do the music technology degree there was a sound design module and there was nothing, um, in regards to designing sound for theatre, so learning things such as Q Lab and developing sound and tech days, all that sort of th- stuff was uh, self-taught really, and I sort of just learned as the process went on. Um, so I, yeah, it's a wee bit difficult. I'm not sure if the same is for lighting, um, if there's any formal training in regards to that, but
3: there. I mean. I would argue, from what I understand, there's a huge amount of formal training for lighting, and there, and I think you're. I, I don't think the reason why organisations are not spending money because of um, sort of obsolescence or like the systems becoming obs- uh, obsolete. I mean a lot of the theaters I worked in have 20 30 year old sound systems and like right. <laughs> they don't they don't seem bothered at all. Um, I think the problem is more that they don't feel like they don't and it, and I, I want to say this with a tone of support and not blame it just isn't important that's that it, it is not on the forefront of the budgetary splits when they sit back and look at what they have to spend every year um, other things are prioritized um I would and I would imagine, massively recently was the sort of switch over to LED and the costs involved in that and lighting and how that just swept the finances of a load of theatres for, and will probably continue to do so for years. It's been a massive cost. Um, And sound systems are incredibly expensive. I mean, really good ones, you know, really good ones are really expensive. So it's like, and it's very hard if you're looking at, if you've seen a culture that just has survived on four speakers and two bases, why would you or two bins, why would you bother changing that unless there was more and more clamor to do so? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think it is it I think it actually genuinely with all things ultimately I think it comes down to education. I think it just it, it what we will need is a generation of directors and curators who want the things we're talking about rather than us having to try and convince. Um, and that it's why I think it, it it's hugely important to have uh, that conversation with the policymakers. It's, it's not to, it's not, as I said, it's not to be like, uh, kind of hectoring and going, why don't people understand what, why, of course they don't understand why, I mean, why would they, um, it's more to do with, I think if we were honest as sound designers, we seem to be a mixed bag of people who've sort of assembled the skill from like loads of different places, because there's not really a formal path and as a result, we're all very multi-disc. Some of us are very technical, like almost sound engineers who do some sound design. Some of us are the complete opposite. They're like basically musicians who've learned a bit of Q-Lab. And there's no, like even on a very simple level, when I'm drawing up plans, you know, I'm sitting beside like, like a, a really experienced lighting designer and they're using like, um you know, they're using, I can't remember the name of the actual program that they use, but they use like really detailed, like down to the millimeter drawings. And I'm sort of like putting pictures of speakers over them going, my speakers will go there or whatever. And it's because there's been no need to do anything more specific than that because it's it's just a waste of time. Because anytime I've drawn really specific sound design uh, parameters in, you go into the space and they're just, scattered that just doesn't work the speakers someone's given out about the fact they can see the speaker or it's in the way of a light or and you're just you're just go back to this thing of like oh just put it in the middle somewhere and i'll I'll deal with it you know um so i think it's this it is it, it there is no blame to point really it's just that there is a cultural um, a sort of misappropriation of what we do, and we've—it's because we've had to assemble it, and we're not very clear sometimes on what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so, yeah, I think um, I think the next generation will be things like what you're describing in in SARK. I think the reason why it's so multidisciplinary is because the other side of sound design is a lot of sound designers are are able to work in loads of different industries because the, there's crossovers that are. Sound is an unusual art form. It crosses over in a lot of places. Whereas like stage lighting is very different to like film lighting or very different to cinematography. They have similar maybe psychologies, but their manifestations are completely different. And so I think it's easier to specialize Whereas I find, as I find pressure to be a jack of all trades to kind of work in, <laughs> you know, I, I can do film, I can do dance, I can do this, I can do that.
2: I kind like that though, because when opportunities arise, you can stick your hand up and set yourself, you know, uh, available for that position where I think lighting designers may not be as flexible, you know, because I have that multidisciplinary knowledge of so many different things. Maybe I'm not fantastic in every single one of them, but if an opportunity or... I see an opportunity comes up, I can stick my hand up and I can learn as I go along. I mean, that's kind of been my motto as a sound designer throughout my entire process. If I don't know it, I'll learn it along the way. And yes, that can be risky in terms of, you know, you might get caught out as not knowing what you're doing. But from my experience, I I love that aspect of it because, you know, what's the analogy I'm trying to think of? A finger in so many different pies, is that the right one? You know, it's just I have the ability to do that many different things. I'm not sure whether you agree as to whether that's a good thing. But I think it just gives me a lot of different opportunities, which I like. I like variety. I think if I was stuck doing, you know, the same type of sound design uh, for the same type of play in the same type of setting each time, it would get boring. I love doing site-specific things. I love doing, you know, spatial audio type projects, um, projects for film as a sound designer, not just for theatre. Um, and that's what keeps it exciting for me. I love to hear what you think about that. Uh, or if you think it's a bad thing. I'm not sure.
1: I think it's great. And I think it's kind of essential to keep the creative juices flowing a bit. I, um, I love jumping to, from different projects to like different forms and stuff. And I think um, I think any kind of work like that just makes you better at your job, I suppose, it, like you know you find if you have to push yourself to create in a way that you haven't before or for a medium that you haven't before everything informs everything else and everything just becomes better as a result um yeah so I think it's it's only good things really um and I think f- doing I, I've only recently started doing sound for film and absolutely loved it because it's such a the, like the very obvious realization of oh I'm making something for something that's fixed and finished you know you get the film edit as opposed to being in the rehearsal room going oh that's totally different from last week you know and it was just this lovely realization of oh this is a different way of working and I have time to try different things and to really get a sense of how they feel and stuff so it was great um also the audiobook side of things has opened up new a new kind of role for sound designers which is really interesting um so that's something that I'm really interested in looking into more. Um, I've done a small bit of work on it, but it's just it's, I just find it like a really gorgeous uh, form. And I think there's lots of room there for um, sound
0: designers to have another string to their bow, I think. Believe it or not, we only have 10 minutes left. and um, Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you a last question related to collaborating with other designers. From some of the observations you made earlier, I got the impression that sound design seems a bit more isolated from the rest of the design process. Is that the case or did I get it completely wrong?
1: I feel like um, sound and lights can do a lot together Um, and I love when there is a like a lighting design that you can really kind of jump on board with and really get stuck in with the lighting designer. I think things can look really clean and really polished and beautiful. Um, if it's that kind of show, you know, obviously every show is different. But yeah, I think the biggest collaboration from the design departments, from my perspective, has definitely been with the lights.
3: Yeah. And I would, I would, I would very much agree. All of my strongest collaborative partners are, are lighter or are in, in some ways video, which is a form of light. If you want to look at it that way. Um, I think the only reason that you would, the sense of isolation is I think it's, it's hard because I, I suppose I'm, I'm a couple of years into my career and that I now tend to work where, where those relationships are. Do you know what I mean? Like you kind of naturally gravitate towards people who are like you. And you end up making work with the people who kind of want to work the way that you want to work. And you you tend to naturally drift from the people that don't. So I I, I guess I have less of that isolation than I used to, I think. I mean, I think now all of my collaborations are really open and furtive and and fantastic. So it's kind of what I will say is, what I'm in some ways I'm speaking more to a institutional conversation rather than a personal creative one and that. I, I'm satisfied in what I do, but I, I had to go through a lot of sort of, um, shall we say, difficulties to get to that place where you would find people who kind of are up for, the, for that open dialogue. And I would just, what I wish for the next generation of designers is that that isn't so hard for them, that like, it's actually much more about like, that that's built into the fabric of theater because to speak to this idea of multi-disc, I'm exact, I work in, as we all do, we work in multiple places. And the danger I find is, it's so attractive to work in other art forms that we may lose a load of sound designers who work in theater to those art forms. Because you just go, well, it's actually just much easier for me to work over here than in this environment with you know old equipment and a sort of an institutional bias that's not quite understanding what I do. Whereas if I move into film or gaming or VR, it's suddenly really open, and everything's really airy, and it's, you know, so in that way, I think maybe that's what you're hearing in the isolation part, is that it's not, there's plenty of theatre that's made that's not like that at all, that all the designers are in it to start, we all get to be, you know, messing each other's art forms, I have a light idea, they have a sound idea, you know, and that's the best type of work, but there is still this kind of uh, skeleton in the closet that I think maybe is what you're hearing is that kind of isolation feeling of like trying to over explain what you do again and I think you just end up drifting so
2: I think from my my perspective the best collaborations has been pre-lockdown and pre-corona where I've been able to be in a room with the director the actors and myself and even sometimes the lighting designers like Peter and Schneider talking about where you know it's They can have an idea. Like, I'd never make... I'm shy. I'm a very shy sort of uh, introvert person. So, you know, I find it difficult to say and provide suggestions for what they do um, in terms of lighting and direction for acting. And I don't think I should comment on those sorts of things, personally. But I love to get um, their perspective on sounds that they would like to hear. Um, I think it makes it a much more enjoyable process, not only for me, but for them as well, um, for them to have a hand in it. In a more professional setting, I don't think I've ever had the chance to collaborate with a light designer. Um, I'd love to. And obviously, within the current situation, there hasn't been um, really any opportunity for me to, aside from collaborations with, you know, like a video editor and the director themselves, there hasn't been much, to be honest. But I really do miss that sort of group collective effort, which I think is missing. And I hope, um, like Peter's saying, you know, maybe... The attractiveness of the multidisciplinary nature of sound design, um, where people can go to many different disciplines, whether it's film, you know, TV, gaming, virtual reality, it might be a wake up call for some theaters to say to themselves, "Look, the people are leaving here. Is well, what? What can we do?" And you know, maybe the updated equipment, um, and different setting, and different ideas that they can bring into that might be a way of sort of retaining sound designers from leaving, um, which I think is interesting. But you know, it could be a wake up call.
0: Okay, it looks like we have time for one last question. And it's about the difference between sound design and composition. <laughs>
3: kind of worms time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, it's a complex one because they use even the phrase soundscape for the awards, which is a terrible word for what what we do. And in fact, has had papers written about how terrible a word it is for what we do. So there's a part of me that I actually wrote a letter to the Times at the time when it came out just going, you can't call it Soundscape. Like it's just not, it's not appropriate. Um, But I think I I understand why there is a a misunderstanding because I misunderstood it. I think, I mean, and that's the primary thing to say is like, I came from music into sound design. So I carried with me a lot of the language of composition into the way that I worked and I found myself wanting to underscore theatre a lot where in fact I've learned as I went along that theatre doesn't want that a lot and in fact you have to kind of lean away from that and that's more of a filmic thing that you're doing in your head or more of a dance thing you know and so there is um, you it's mixed because primarily from my perspective I I think I may have added to that by putting myself out there in professionally as both and not being definitive about the difference myself when I was hired. As I started getting more work, I started to realize I couldn't manifest the amount of things I was being asked to do for the money I was being offered. That was the major problem. Is like I couldn't do a 40 minute score and do the sound design and get paid the same as the lighting designer who was coming in for like, you know, for concept meetings and then maybe three rehearsals and then a tech I was doing weeks and weeks and weeks of work on top of that. And like, you know, and it became unfeasible to live off. Um, and then I suddenly realized I was doing two jobs actually what I realized, what I very much realized was I was doing two jobs. So I think in the simplest way to imagine it there, all I can say is there is a difference between the, the thing that is the positioning of sound in space and the concept of that positioning in terms of a, say an experience, I don't wanna say just theater, versus the actual things that are within that. I like, so the content, which I, is a word I hate, but the kind of parts of that. And then I think the more musical it gets, the further away from straight design it is, and the more that has to be considered in the process. Cause they, they'll always cross over. But there has to be an understanding that if you want more and more music in a production, what you're doing is you're asking a composer to work. If you want less and less and less, that's fine. And you have more of a designer. Now, that's not the best. I'd love to hear your versions of it, guys. But that's the best way I've managed to figure it is I see it like a scale in my head that has two weights. And when it's balanced, I don't feel overworked. Mm. And when it's not, I feel incredibly overworked. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I think there's a real issue with, like you said, like the definition you know, and people's understanding of the definition of what a sound designer is. And I think, I mean, you guys might disagree with me, but I think all sound designers are composers in a lot of ways, but not all composers are sound designers. So it it's kind of trying, and again, like we're all, like sound designers would have different levels of like compositional skills or or would want to compose less or more. So it's, it's a very individual thing. Um, and I think like looking at different countries and how they work, You know, a sound designer is very much kind of the sound engineer of the show. They're the head of the department and they look after like the physical things, the mics and and the sound effects. But if there's any music to be added there, they will hire a a composer. And it's a very clear definition, a very clear separation of the work. Um, So a lot of the time, like you, um, Peter, I feel like I'm limited in how much composition I can put into things because of time and because of... um, how, you know, far out from the process I've been hired. And, and you know, there's just there isn't enough time to be the sound designer to, to like, you know, make sure that department is all going fine and also be at home writing complicated pieces of music and scoring them and putting them all together to try them in the room that could be thrown out. Um, so it's tricky. And I, I always and I think I always will. I always want to compose more for shows. I always like and it's just it's, it's, it's the, fun part. <laughs> it is the fun part and like you know having kind of so many ideas and I think that's what's really attractive for film as well because you do get the time to compose and you get to kind of yeah play around a lot more but um yeah I think it's time and I think it's money when it comes to sound design and composition.
2: When you I at mean, sound design I mean a sound design like an audience member thinks of the music as sound you know the, the, the definition is definitely quite confusing for someone that isn't actually in the discipline itself. I mean, my parents would just consider everything they hear in a performance as part of the sound design, regardless of its effects, regardless if it's a full musical composition. It doesn't really matter to them. They just perceive it as sound. Um, I think to to kind of combat that and to help with that distinction, I think you need to make it clear from the very start of a production as to what your role as a sound designer is because yes, it's the fun part, you know, making music, if the production requires it. But again, that type of workload is far too much, especially for myself. I mean, I've had experience in the past where I am the sound designer, but I've been able to compose sort of musical elements, not necessarily a score or a a full composition, but I've been able to incorporate musical elements as part of the sound design. And so I'm kind of blurring the definitions, which I don't know, maybe I'm not helping the problem, but I don't mind giving myself that work. It's to the extent of what you two are talking about, where it is two predefined roles, one as a sound designer and one as a music composer. And again, some directors, I think, to help this, need to have an understanding of sound and what the rule is. Otherwise, they'll just consider everything in their head as their ideas as to what they want the sound. They'll expect you to do it, which I don't think is fair. Um, but from my perspective, I've just tried to make it clear from the start as to what my role is and if you require sort of anyone else to help out with that aspect you'll need to get them in otherwise i won't be able to do it
3: but another another thing to add to that which i might help i think is that one of the things i've tried to start doing is in the same way that and i think lighting is a really good place to frame this a lot of lighting designers will have a chief lx someone that they sort of lean on technically in the space and I, I've started asking for a chief assets. I basically say, well, if you want me to do this mix of creative design and also technical implementation, then I will need, just like a lighting designer, I'm going to need a support member that I can trust to, to take over technical responsibility. The other thing I've tried to do is to make a very clear definition. A lot of the, there's a, the misuse of the phrase AV a lot, where like people are, call themselves AV designers, and then they hand you silent video, and you're expected to put sound on it. And you're kind of like, hold on a minute, like you're the audio visual designer of that. I-, I don't know why this is my job. So like, there's a thing there too, of like acknowledging that sound is also attached to video. It's also attached. So there is this danger that you become an everyman in the space for anything that's heard. And actually, you're right. Actually, I, I like, in many ways, you have to start to be like, okay, I'm, I'm happy to be in charge of the say, the conceptual sort of department, like the the art of all the sound. I'm I'm happy to take that on as an artist, Mm -hmm. but if it comes down to you needing an entire score and you've got video coming in that has no sound design on it and you've got this sort of um, high technical load, then the team required will be this. And I think that's something that isn't discussed enough too. Um, So, yeah, I think part of it is our responsibility, but also part of it is, the danger with saying it's our responsibility is you can end up being in the line of fire a lot for kind of delivering bad news, which, yeah. which doesn't feel nice. So, yeah.
1: And I also think like there has to be room for, you know, ideas to flourish within the four weeks or within whatever the rehearsal time is. So, you know, something might come up major rehearsal that didn't come up at the beginning that you have to be able to adapt and take on board. But it's just, like you said, it's about managing workload, managing expectations and, um, not kind of saying, no, I can't do this because that's actually not in my specific role. You know, it's leaving the door open for things to happen within reason, I suppose, as well.
3: They're the best shows, right? They're the ones where you get to just be like, here actually I have this string thing and I think it'd work brilliantly here. And you get or you turn around to the video person and you're like, would you mind if I put a thing on that? Because I have and like, yeah, it's just I think it's more about when you accidentally overstretch. And you're suddenly left with this responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> you know?
1: can, I, can I ask you, Peter, how have you used your chief? Because it's something I'm really interested in, but I'm not actually sure how to implement the role that works best for me, if that makes sense.
3: The, the way that I've tried to do it, the times that I've had one, is that I acknowledge in myself that I am part of, that I don't have to take full responsibility for the technical implementation. What I mean by that is, like microphone positioning hiring the like that the sort of management of the desk things like that i basically have conversations with them where i say this is the kind of rig i'd like to use i'm going to use like you know eight point or ten point sound i want speakers here and here my general idea is it's going to be surround with maybe two speakers behind the audience two subs underneath four in front or something that's and i'd like you to build that for me and put it in and then i i don't I, I still do my own programming because that has never worked. I've tried and it just doesn't, I think sound is too specific. Yeah. You get really finicky. I, I'm not going to be, could you move the the fader a little more to the left? It's like, no, just let me do it. Totally. But what it means is there's someone there that I can rely on to allow me to stay more. In the, and I, I don't like this word, but the, maybe the, the creative design, I'm, I can sit more in that than worrying about the technical implementation and then it just means that when I leave the room, particularly if there's live sound in the show, mm-hmm. that I really trust that person to know exactly what I wanted to do. And I don't mind them going into the file and altering it and all that stuff. It's like, that's, it's kind of, and if I'm honest with you, I'm, I'm learning how to do it. It's not yeah. a thing. I, I actually, I, I, I didn't really know how to do it because I was like, I'm so used to doing it on my own. But I think it was acknowledging that I, I'm not a professional. I mean, I'm not a gigging live engineer. Yeah. And once I acknowledged that rather than limiting my design with the fear of that responsibility I was like well let's just get someone who is like and you know and they learn as much from you as you learn from them
1: you know Absolutely. And I mean it it makes perfect sense that you will then be enabled to make the best design you can because the job has been like the job is in the in the right hands you you know you've let go of the responsibility of the things that don't actually really matter they just need to get done so then you can create and you know produce a design that you're really happy with it's dreamy
3: and you get very lucky like there's certain venues like the projects in Dublin i have to put just put a shout out to them and say their team basically acts like yeah. chief, exorcist and chief. So you, you, you get, and I remember the feeling of it doing a the show there. I was like, why do I feel so creative and, and chill? And, and then you look back and you go, because the team are brilliant. Like, yeah. I just say, God, I'd love if that speaker was wired into this. And then you forget you said it. And 20 minutes later, like someone comes <laughs> up and goes, oh, I did that for you there. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. It's, it's that person I want to work with that just lets me know it's okay to have an idea that's on the fly that they can fix for me, you
1: know? Totally, um, and, and, and it's okay to not know something. I think, like, there's an expectation as a sound designer that you have to know absolutely everything about everything that makes noise, or the desks, or the cables, like, every single possible thing. And in houses like Project and places like that, it's fine to be asked something and go, I have no idea. And they're like, <laughs> no problem. You know, there's a real power in that. Yeah,
0: thank you so much it's been incredibly insightful and interesting for someone like me who knows very little about sound design and i am sure that it's going to make for a great listen for other sound designers so thank you so much for a fantastic conversation thank you so much thank you and thanks
3: for having us. And I think it's worth saying, I don't know if this is useful, but part of the ISSSD, as I understood it when we were in it first, was to have these conversations as a community, which is why this podcast is so amazing. And i just like to put my hand up and say, if there's anyone that wants to chat about this stuff outside of this, feel free to email. I'm always up for a bit of a rant about this stuff. Um,
0: Same. <laughs> <laughs> rant, it's always good. Anyway, lovely meeting you all. Thank you so much. Yeah, guys.
3: Really, really, really nice to meet you properly today, kind of yeah. properly, and yeah, really yeah, nice to meet you, Isaac, as well. And uh, as I said. Anytime I'm up for chats about this stuff, it's it's uh, I think we fix the problem by talking about it. So yeah,
1: definitely. And I think as sound designers we like it's I suppose it's the same for other departments too. You just never get to talk to other sound designers. Oh. So <laughs> it's like it's a real joy to be like, what plugins are you using? You know, like <laughs> just anything. <laughs>
0: lovely afternoon. Yes, Have a lovely you
1: too, afternoon. Yeah, guys. Thanks a million. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our podcast. We will be back soon with a new episode. The Irish Society of Stage and Screen Designers podcasts are possible thanks to the Design and Crafts Council of Ireland.